And it's just a very difficult, I think, experience to process when you, you know, when you go through that process. And I think one of the appealing thing about, you know, getting involved in mental health advocacy issues was that, you, you know, I always felt like I was doing something. I was maybe, maybe this wouldn't help my sister, but it could help others. And that is such an empowering process. And at least it was for me. Hello, and welcome to Grief, Gratitude, and the Gray in Between podcast. This podcast is about exploring the grief that occurs at different times in our lives, in which we have had major changes and transitions that literally shake us to the core and make us experience grief. I created this podcast for people to feel a little less hopeless and alone in their own grief process as they hear the stories of others who have had similar journeys. I'm Kendra Rinaldi, your host. Now, let's dive right in to today's episode. Our guest today is Mary Hayashi, a distinguished author, healthcare leader, and trailblazer in the realm of public service. She has an upcoming book titled Women in Politics, Breaking Down the Barriers to Achieve True Representation. Not only does she explore the strides made by women in government, but she also delves into the deep personal aspects of her life that have shaped her path. And that is primarily what we will be talking about today is the why she is passionate about the topics she advocates for and her own journey. So welcome, Mary. Thank you so much, Kendra. I love the title of your podcast. It's so amazing that you provide this safe space for people to come and, you know, grieve and reflect on their life journeys. And I just, I think what you're doing is amazing. Thank you for having me. I am grateful that you're here and grateful that you will be sharing your story. I got to read part of your book and I'm I'm really excited to talk to you about the aspects of your life that you are passionate about. You touch about different subjects in your book and you have different stories of different people within your book as well. But let's talk about your own story. Share with us your upbringing, please. Uh, yes, and um, I this is I, this is my second book. I actually have a, another book that was published now twenty years ago, and it it really centered around you know my upbringing and my sister's death and how we dealt with it. And when I got older. Um, you know, completed my education, I really wanted to dedicate my life's work to advancing mental health issues for others. As you mentioned, this book um, centers around, you know, politicians, you know, what motivates women to run for office. And, you know, there are a lot of barriers to overcome, but they still get in, you know, get involved and run for office. And when they're elected, they do amazing things. I really wanted to to, to focus this book on, on sort of the why women run for office. And that's why my foreword in this book is written by Mario Hemingway. People ask me, this is about politics, but you don't have a politician writing the foreword. You know, I, I did that deliberately because 
you know, Muriel, like me, you know, she lost so you know family members to suicide, and she became more vocal and active uh, in social change because of her personal experience. And so, even though the book is about women in politics, it's really about our journey and my journey and how it began, and and the book sort of providing uh, women's uh, platform to to speak their mind. I also wanted to inspire younger women to realize that, you know, they can write their own life path and to see that we don't have to be controlled by our ethnicities or culture or background. Well, what I mean by that is, I mean, I'm not even supposed to be in politics. I was born and raised in a very small town in South Korea and moved here when I was 12 years old and I didn't speak any English. That same year, my older sister passed away, died by suicide six months prior to moving here. And she was only 17 years old. And I had no idea what had happened to her. I mean, she's somebody that I shared a room with and looked up to. And she was such a, you know, I use this phrase, good girl throughout my book. Mm -hmm. And I think this is something that we can all relate to, regardless of our, you know, ethnicity or family histories that, you know, women are supposed to be quiet and and, and be good and get along and build consensus and not get into fights. And, and I think that the way we sort of, or I, the way I dealt with my sister's death really uh, shows that, that I was a good girl. You know, according to my culture, we weren't supposed to talk about her death or mental illness or any type of, you know, issues that have stigma associated with this and something that we talk about. So not even as a family. And, you know, that had a big impact on me. And I didn't know it then, or I didn't know, you know, I mean, I, did, I had no idea. But I, I grew up, even when I came here, my parents were like, you're going to get married before you become an old maid. And you're going to get married before you're 21 and have children. That's what you're going to do. And I always thought that that was my life path mm-hmm. until I went to Cal State Long Beach, took a class called Women's Studies, it was women's literature class. And at first I didn't know what it was. I thought it was something that maybe would help me become a better wife or maybe a better homemaker. So I took this <laughs> class and it turns out it was about you know feminist theories and what American women have done to change their life trajectory. And that was so inspiring for me. And after that class, I, I decided I, you know, I don't, you know what, I'm going to move up north, join my friends who are going to UC Berkeley and, you know, and just create a different life for myself. Um, and so I, you know, in my book, I talk about sort of my own journey, which is to get into nonprofit work and, and just thinking about my sister's death and how nobody really helped her and I couldn't help her. I really wanted to do something for her. And, and there were just so many people suffering in silence because of stigma and discrimination. I thought the best thing to do was to create an organization that could amplify Asian American women and mental health issues. And so that's, that, that's what I did. And that, that experience uh, basically changed my entire you know, career. And the pol- you know, even when I got into politics and I You know, even after I got elected, the first legislation that I authored was to create 
Office of Suicide Prevention for California. So even to this day, I mean, this is an issue that I continue to to work on. And I think what's really amazing about your show and just kind of bringing it back to, you know, your own personal journey and your podcast is that, you know, whether it's politics or nonprofit or, you know, even if you work in business, you know, we we're all impacted by grief and we're all influenced by, you know, like you said, the gray in between. (laughs) And (laughs) we I've had incredible professional achievements and, um, you know, a lot of things that I'm very proud of. Um, But in the end, you know, spaces like this allow me to come and talk about my grief and be honest about my family background and, and, you know, and just, just like have a conversation. So again, I really think that your, your podcast is just so perfect for this book, even though this is about politicians. No, it's it's about stories, you know, the stories that shape us. And that is exactly what you share in your book. It's not only how your own story shaped your life and the choices you made, but also other women that you uh, highlight in your book, as well as how it shaped their their path as well. So let's talk about like the aspect of then death by suicide and the mental health component that you're so passionate about. You were the commissioner on uh, California Mental Health Services. Is that correct? Is that one of the things that you did? So tell us what kind of spaces. You mentioned you've done suicide awareness platforms as well. So how did your sister's life and choices in her life and her death impact you to now create these different platforms? Yeah, so I think... What's really tough about grief and, you know, losing somebody and, you know, somebody that you're close to is that you feel very helpless, Mm. especially if somebody dies by suicide. That's very hard because you don't know and it's unexpected. And so, I mean, not that, you know, somebody dying of cancer is easy. Of course not. But I think because we were you know, and I was very young at the time too. It's just, you feel like there's really, you know, you think, oh, could I, should I have done something or could I have done something? And it's just a very difficult, I think, experience to process when you, you know, when you go through that process. And I think one of the appealing thing about, you know, getting involved in mental health advocacy issues was that, you, you know, I always felt like I was doing something. I was, Maybe, maybe this wouldn't help my sister, but it could help others. Mm. And that is such an empowering process. And at least it was for me. And in my book, and I don't know if you got, this is sort of in the later chapter, but um, I, I talk about mentors, you know, cause that's, that's a phrase, that's, that's a word that you, that is used. We throw around. <laughs> yeah. We throw around very easily. Yeah. <laughs> and even though I interviewed 17 women, I interviewed one man and he was a mentor of mine. And I acknowledge in my book that many of these women that I interviewed in the book talked about having male mentors. And I thought that was important to highlight. Mm. Whether we like it or not, they are part of the solution for gender parity. And I had an incredible mentor and I was very lucky. He was a legislator and he had a family member who um, suffered from mental illness. And in the legislature, he championed some really amazing pilot programs and just 
amazing mental health work. And back then, this was what, 15 years ago or so, a lot of, you know, a lot of politicians didn't adopt, like they didn't really adopt mental illness as their platform. And so I thought, I thought that was really different that he did that. And so, you know, when I worked for him, he approached me and said, you know, I'm thinking about uh, sponsoring a statewide ballot measure that will tax millionaires 1% surcharge on their annual income to create mental health funding. And I, so those of you listening to this podcast, if you're a millionaire, I'm sorry, because it did pass. <laughs> um, if you're in California, I apologize for that. But, you know, when Ronald Reagan was the governor, he closed a lot of the mental health hospitals. There was a lot of dysfunction, abuse. Um, also, he wanted to cut you know, the, the budget. And that's when, you know, we had this huge influx of homelessness start. And, I, and, that, and he said, well, community-based programs would be better for mentally ill people. But that promise was never fulfilled by money. So this ballot measure was, was our opportunity to kind of fulfill that promise, Commun- more community-based, more compassionate mental health care. So I got to work on that ballot measure in 2004. And that, that experience really changed my path from working on, you know, not working for nonprofit organizations to, to basically go, you know, going inside the government and running for office. I mean, that experience was amazing. And, you know, because we were taking on millionaires, we didn't have a lot of rich people saying, oh, I'm going to, you know, donate to this ballot measure and help you. I mean, it was really just just, you know, very, very small budget. Um, And, you know, there's 40 million people in California. It's a big state. And so you have to have a significant amount of money to run a statewide ballot measure. But we we passed that and we won with a lot of grassroots help. And honestly, I think it was because everyone, everyone I met during the campaign had somebody, they know somebody Mm -hmm. who was impacted by mental illness family, friend, friend of a friend, they knew someone who needed help. Um, So after that passed, the governor appointed me to the commission that was set up to oversee the the funding and um, approve, you know, county level grants. And and so so after that experience, I decided to run for office. And I apologize for this long-winded answer, but that that commission was so significant in that we had we had on the commission people living with mental illness service commissioners. I mean, we really wanted to show that that people with mental illness can get help and they can be treated and they could be leaders. And it was so important to show people that. And so it, it was incredible. It was an incredible opportunity for me to to go out and you know help um, help organizations. And we would you know, we would get, you know, grant applications and we would, you know, review them and we, you know, approve them. And 20% of the set aside ballot measure money had to go to prevention and innovation. And so we were approving a lot of innovative, you know, ideas. People had ideas to, to, to break down the stigma. And there wasn't, you know, nobody was really funding mental illness and mental health issues at that level. So that was an exciting time. 
Let's let's talk about that, the stigma. First off, let's talk about the cultural stigma in your upbringing since your sister died by suicide before you moved to the U.S., correct? In yeah, Korea. that same year. Mm-hmm. Yes, let, let's talk about your, you know, in your own culture and then also in the culture then that you guys then adopted to be your own. How do you see it having evolved in the years, because it's been many years since your sister died by suicide. So would you share about that, please? I mean, the the morning that my sister passed, you know, she she showed me like these, she said, you know, why don't you look at the trash can? She was a little bit weird. It was January 1st, 1980. And I was actually heading out to go see my friend And she said, I want you to look at the trash can. And it had these um, sleeping pill packages in there. And and I said, well, what did you do? And she's like, I really needed something. And she asked me, she said, don't tell anyone. Don't tell dad. And so she wasn't quite right. But I left because, culture, you know, as a good girl, you got to keep the promise. And you were only 12, too. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) you didn't know what that was like how would you have even put that connection there yeah so uh so I left and you know it's on January 1st basically you know we we go to like our relatives homes and we you know we wish them like new year sort of like you know wish and we bow and they give us money that's kind of the tradition new year's is like a big deal So I went out and I went to my friends and we were kind of, you know, going to go, we had plans to go visit my relatives, her relatives. And, um, I got a call from my cousin who said, you know, you need to come home right away. So by the time I got back, they've already, you know, and she, she hung herself and they've already got rid of the body. I don't know where it went. And my parents decided to burn everything like the photos like I actually have photos in my in my first book I have these pictures that I included where the sizing's all weird because they cut her out of the photos it was one of those things where they want they did not my parents did not want to acknowledge that she ever existed you know that's kind of how they dealt with grief you know it was just so much shame she brought so much shame and there's just you know there's just I mean, stigma doesn't even really describe it because it's, there's like another layer of just unacceptance. It's, you know, you're not being a good girl if you divulge this kind of family's dirty secret kind of thing. So was her and name ever mentioned again after, like her name, her birthday, her uh, her anniversary of her passing? Were those kind of uh, yeah moments of her own life ever mentioned again in your family after her death like would they acknowledge that it had it would it would have been her birthday or did they oh, acknowledge God, no. oh not at all no so it's like completely oh. erasing that yes. other person at that moment mm. yes yeah so in my first book I talk about the um what's the name of your first book by the way um, I want it's called far from home okay and I um, have to read it, that one <laughs> yeah so that I mean that really aligns probably a lot more with like the subjects that you've covered and the I saw some of the the um, guests that you had in the past but I mean I do talk about it in this book it's just more of in in a like a summary but mm-hmm. the first book talks about all of this great detail 
you know, my family decided not to ever mention her. I mean, my sister, I have another younger sister. We talked about her, you know, like, oh, if she was a, like, if, what kind of mom do you think she would have been? I mean, we like, and now those kinds of conversations, but like, we're not allowed to have her photos or, or discuss that she ever existed. So yeah, no, there was no funeral or anything. Um, we weren't even allowed to have her photos <laughs> and all of her belongings were just gone. I mean, I don't know how, I, I mean, they were so fast because it only took me like 40 minutes to come back home from my friend's house and everything was gone. Her body was gone. Her belongings were gone. I can't even fathom. Like it's, yeah, it, and it, but it's just, of course a different way of you know, culturally and grief wise of how they dealt with it. And as we say, everybody grieves differently, not only individually, but also culturally, it's just expressed differently. So I'm grateful for you sharing that, but it must've been really hard as a 12 year old, suddenly just erasing your 17 year old sister from your life in that way for you, that they erased her from your life. Right. And you don't really realize, uh, you don't, I mean, you realize things much later because mm-hmm. when, when I think back, it's just like, okay, I have to do what the parents tells me to do. You know, it's not, it's not like there's a choice. Um, so the, the whole good girl kind of concept, um, in my culture anyway, you know, we, we value girls um, who are silent. We, you know, we celebrate silence as a strength. That's a strength, not talking about it. That's being a strong person. And so I, you know, for a long time, I think, you know, even even when I started my own organization, um, I was like 26 years old. I had no idea what I was doing. But I thought, you know, somebody needs to start talking about this. (laughs) And I mean, until that point, like it was, I, I just felt really weird talking about it in public. It's just, or sharing with people. And when I shared it with, um, you know, friends when I was in my like early twenties, like I still remember I have a, I I had a girlfriend who never called me back after that because she, and she was Korean, just like me. Um, she just didn't want anything to do with me. And she just thought it was like, you know, like I was from like a really, you know, uh, damaged damaged yeah Yeah. damaged goods yeah and she just didn't want anything to do with me Mm -hmm. so and and this was you know this was here in america and so a lot you know so we kind of carry those values with us even if we're not in the home country i think we tend to listen to our parents and you know that was kind of our upbringing and so think about one example that i give um in the fundraising chapter is that you know we don't ask for money from strangers, you know, as good girls, we, we don't do that. Who does that? But when you're running for office, you got to make cold calls. I mean, it's sales. You got to call people and ask for donation. And I had to do that. And I was just horrified. I mean, I, I, I had such a hard time making that transition, even though I had raised like $10 million for my nonprofit organization that's different because I'm doing it for a cause, but like, can you write me a check? Like that was so hard. And my very first job, when I moved up to San Francisco area, um, during the job interview, they hired me, like they hired me on the spot, but I didn't even ask them how much this job pays. (laughs) 
Well, because in our culture, you don't talk about money. You don't talk about death. You don't talk about money, you know? And so you, you're, and you're supposed to be grateful. If you're a good girl, you're just grateful for anything. And that's so Asian too. And not to stereotype all of us, but that was my experience. And so when the HR person said, well, do you want to know how much this pays? I mean, I was so uncomfortable. And I remember just looking down and I was like, okay. She's like, you know, this is an hourly rate and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, okay. You know, and it, it's just, I was just so not comfortable. So I went from that to, you know, when you run for office, I'm calling these mostly men, donors, who I've never met before, introducing myself over the phone and asking for a contribution. And that was such a hard thing to overcome. But I did. How did you? Yes. Let's talk about that. How did you? Because that is, first off, that's like you're in your 20s at that point, probably, right? When you already start. Yes? Yes. Around your 20s. So for 20 some years, you're living this good girl type of persona that you've been uh, basically, how do you, uh, indoctrinated to be, right? That is your culture. That is how you are. And breaking away from that, because so many of us carry things of our own identity that are just part of it, either because of culture or because of our parents or, or the, yeah, whatever, different things, stigmas around society. And to break away from that, that takes so much strength and courage. So how did you start chipping. I know like you're saying little bits and stuff of of it, but did you do a lot of personal growth and development or reading a lot of books? Like what were these channeling kind of forces that helped you be able to really unleash who you are? So there's, um, so I want to make two points. Uh, one is that, you know, like I said in my book, and I'm quoting our first partner, Jennifer Newsom, you know, you can't be what you can't see. And I talk about these role models that I had and mentors and other women of color leaders got out there and just sat, like started an organization, African-American women, you know, Latina, Native American. And so I had very specific examples to follow. And the second thing I want to talk about is that I still catch myself. Like I ask myself, oh, am I taking too much credit for this? Oh, am I being too aggressive? Oh, is this okay? Is this, you know, is this, is, is this okay to say in front of people? I still have those conversations with myself. It never goes away. And um, there's a phrase in my book that, that, that I love very much. I, I talk about how, the, you know, there's no magic moment in this. And I think it's true for grief too. There's, there's no magic one moment, you know, but it's just, it's, it's an ongoing thing. It's just an ongoing process growth. And, you know, because even to this day, like I would be in a meeting and I'll self-check, oh, I shouldn't take too much credit. I shouldn't be too aggressive because women are not supposed to be ambitious. Um, you know, I should give credit to somebody else. I mean, those are like the good girl training that I got <laughs> when I was a child. And so even though I'm in my mid-50s, I still have those questions. And so that's one thing to kind of remember is that there is no magic moment, unfortunately. 
Sorry. No, it's a journey. No, 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 no. You, you said it actually perfectly. It started chipping away because one, you started seeing other women, like you said, of, of color, of other, you know, nationalities, yeah. minorities representing and speaking up. And then you're having this example of what it could look like yes. to speak up for yourself. So that was one of the things that were a catalyst for your change. Uh, yeah, of course. And once you start getting into politics, like you said, you just kind of had to start asking for, you know, money or <laughs> things like that. Now, let's talk about women then. Since the title of your book is Women in Politics, you started aligning yourself with different women as well as men that were your mentors and, and, and such. Let's talk about the role of women and even the because you mentioned this a little bit, the aspects of motherhood in, in politics. Yeah, so th this is another thing that I discovered during my research for this book. Um, many women, because I've asked everyone that I interviewed, like, what, why did you run? And studies have shown that women run for office to solve problems. I mean, that, it doesn't mean that men do not, but for men, it's more about leadership. And... Women start their own business because they want to have that flexibility. They want to be able to pick up their kids and be available to people. You know, they want more of that in their life. Whereas men, when they start their own business, it's because they seek a leadership position. Oh, I want to own my own company. I want to make more money. I want that leadership spot, you know? And so it's very, very in, the, in that sort of similar way in politics, women run for office to solve problems. And one of the things that I asked everybody is like, oh, so what, you know, what motivated you? And almost everyone talked about being a mother and how that influenced their decision to run. And I don't have children. So this was very interesting to me. And I, has, I, I struggle a little bit writing about the motherhood chapter just because, you know, I don't have a personal experience of being a mom. I'm, a, I'm an auntie. Um, but I think that's very different because I don't really need to worry about their problems 24-7 <laughs> like their mothers do. Um, but I start the chapter with a woman asking me at a training, candidate training. She asked me, can I run for office if I have small children? And I, and I thought it was like, well, yeah, of course you can. There's so many examples. But I didn't want to tell her the truth. I said, yeah, you can. But I didn't follow that up with, but you're going to have a really hard time <laughs> because of gender bias. Um, and, you know, they're just, although it's, it's a fuel, it's a motivation for women for running for office, like Cindy Rue from Washington, she says she came home and complained about city council's decision on some land use issue. And the daughter said, mom, stop you know, stop complaining and do something. And that really motivated her to run to solve that problem. And so there's so many examples like that where, um, you know, women use motherhood and their role in, you know, in their home and in the larger society for greater good. And I just thought that it's almost like a qualification, you know, and I need to write about this. And so, so you know, motivation for running, there's that. Now, we also experience, you know, double standard. Congresswoman Grace Meng, you know, she talked about how she 
you know, took her kids to like a community event on the weekend and a voter confronted her and said, I didn't vote for you so you could be a babysitter. Meaning like, why did you bring your child? But when this happens with a male legislator, people often say, oh, that's so great. What a great dad, great example. You know, showing his kids how to be a leader. And so that gender bias and that double standard is very tough for women in politics. And being a mom is, it, it, it's, it's tough. And it, it's not just the, the, you know, the time and the, the obligations and the responsibilities, but what the society sort of expects women to be. And we still have that bias about, oh, who's cooking the dinner if you're doing this? That yeah. kind of mentality still exists. And so it makes it tough for, you know, for women. Um, one of the women in the, that, in the book that I really enjoyed getting to know is Florida Senate Minority Leader Lauren Book. She, um, she you know, when she wasn't, she got to the Senate, she was very young. She's still in her mid-30s, I think. And somebody asked her, like, oh, you should run for the Senate leader position that's going to be available. You should be the leader. And one of the, you know, one of the men in the caucus said to her, you just had, you know, you just delivered like two small babies, like twins, you know, and you, you can't lead, you can't possibly do this job. And that, those kind of comments are never directed at men, but very much directed at women leaders. And I think women experience that in the business too. This is no different anywhere else, but um, I just think that it is, Yes, we can overcome. You can still run for office. You could still be a CEO, but we got a lot of work to do. We got a lot of education to do. We have, you know, women still experience, um, you know, discrimination and double standards. So I, I really wanted to write about that, even though I'm not a mother personally. I thought that was an experience that was commonly sort of talked about among all the women I interviewed. Thank you. Thank you for, for sharing that. Now, how does mental health play a part in women that are in politics? D do you notice anything, like, because of all these double standards as well, is there more of this pressure in women, do you feel, in politics of what you've observed and with mental health in general? Well, I, I love this quote. I didn't use it in my book. You know, women's courage is often misunderstood as crazy or something, you know. <laughs> I think that there's this bias that, that women are not strong. There's already this, you know, the, the minute you announce for candidacy, like people are like, oh, you know, is she strong enough to lead? You know, is she strong enough to do this job? That's kind of on the voter's mind. That gender bias still exists today. And so, you know, you... When you're, when you're strong and when you show ambition and when you're aggressive, then there's also that, oh, you know, I don't really like her. I don't like that she is, you know, she's aggressive and she's really ambitious. And women get penalized for that. Men, they don't because they're expected to be ambitious and they're expected to seek leadership position. I mean, Bill Clinton said he wanted to run for president because he met JFK. That was his reason. But if, women can't have reasons like that because we're not supposed to be ambitious. So that, yeah, so that gender bias still plays a role um, in women in politics. 
And it's, it's difficult. It's, it's a very delicate balance. We have to be likable to win. Mm. But then if we show our ambition or if we're aggressive, then people don't like us. The voters don't like us because then we, our behavior run contrary to, to their stereotype of what a woman should be. And so it's a, but then we can't be weak because we've got to be strong and we need to show that we can lead. And so it, it's hard. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not a psychologist, but I'm sure that has impact on women. Of no. course. Now, what are, what are things that you see help us as women to really support our mental health? What are some tips in your experience of working in this field of mental health awareness and suicide prevention as well? What are some things that we can do to really support our mental health? Not just as women, as everybody, but I mean, yeah, I can just say if you well, it's an important question because we do need that. We we need some like, we need something to to kind of use as a guide, you know. And one thing that I found um, kind of troubling during the research part is that um, women don't always support women. You know, it's um, we should if women voted. I mean, just as an example, and I'm not trying to be like partisan, but Hillary Clinton was the first women, you know, Democratic nominee for president, but she didn't win, even though 51% of the voters are women. So women don't always vote for women. Women don't always support women. It's because women, some women still have that gender bias. Like they were raised to be good girls. And so they think that's kind of how they... They, they, they also have that sort of view. And so one thing that I like to ask is people to kind of check their bias, you know, do like an inventory, like you don't have to write about it or blog about it, but, you know, we all have these biases and I think it would be nice if people could realize that, you know, Asian women aren't going to, like, we're not, the, the stereotypes are, you know, we have to be quiet and grateful and quiet and all of that, but it's, that's not necessarily who I am and that should be okay. But when I was in the legislature, I didn't feel like all women supported me. You know, they, they haven't really dealt with Asian women as colleagues before. And so they had a really hard time like, oh, wow, she's so aggressive. Cause I mean, I can be aggressive, but I'm not like aggressive. Assertive. Like, Assertive. It's assertiveness. It's assertiveness. Yeah, yes. It's very different, right? But you would be surprised. Like people would just constantly criticize me for my style. It didn't matter, you know, like if I was doing something good, they were so focused on the style. And women do that. We judge other women by their style and not by substance. And men do that too. So we really need to kind of rethink some of these you know, gender bias issues and, 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 and kind of be open because it, people use, people confused me and another Asian woman legislator. I mean, there's only two of us for God's sakes. And it's like, we go to work every day and people still confuse us, you know, for like six years. And when I was doing the research, I found out that that really takes an emotional toll because it says that I'm not important. I'm not worth kind of membering. You know, it, it, I think, yes, we need tools ourselves, but I, I really wanted to highlight in my book that we all have bias and we need to, we need to support other women. 
you know, and for us, you know, so let's start, let's, let's change like from here, you know, that, that not all women are the same. You know, we need to be more open-minded about Asian, like Asian women in leadership. I mean, we still have no Asian women CEO running Fortune 500 company because we're not seen as leaders. And so those kind of bias really hurt people. And so that's kind of my suggestion. You know, <laughs> I know you're right. looking for some quick guides to, to no, how to no, 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 no. cope with grief, but I, I had a lot of time to reflect on my service, you know? <laughs> yes. No, it's your personal perspective. So that's the thing. It's like, what is your perspective on this matter? And it's all so valuable because other people will relate to the words and your experience as well. Because just like what you're saying, representation matters in this podcast. That's what I try to also share is different viewpoints, different ways of life, different life experiences, not only just in grief, but of the, the, the individuals dealing with the grief, because that way people that are listening can relate. And in this case too, it's like your, your grief, your story was part of the catalyst to get you to who you are and what you do now and the advocacy that you do now. So thank you for everything you do to highlight and support mental health and bring awareness to this issue as well as suicide prevention as well. So thank you for, um, for that. Thank you for that. I want to mention one other thing. I interviewed Amanda Hunter from the Barbara Lee Family Foundation and they, you know, they work on electing more women to executive level positions, which is really hard, like governors and mayors. They did some focus group research and asked uh, participants to picture a governor and an overwhelming majority envisioned a man. And that includes women as well. Like women focus group participants also envisioned a man. So when we talk about gender bias, we really, it's, it's, it's just not, it's just not men versus women thing. You know, women supporting other women and just showing more compassion, you know, toward, um, each other, I think would go a long way. But it also comes to what you were even just saying for yourself, for your own upbringing of certain stereotypes or standards that are end up kind of putting into your subconscious from your upbringing in this country and other probably countries too. It's these un unknown, you know, we don't even know how indoctrinated we are ourselves to then even as women to then like what you said, if they put, oh, what, what do you picture your governor to be that automatically put a male? Because again, we might have not seen enough representation out there of other women that are mothers, that are juggling all these things that maybe look like us that have done it, right? So that's why a lot of times I think these, these kind of biases continue is because we don't break break away from the cultural patterns that we are brought up into. Of course. And, you know, it's, it's not just, I mean, it, this is, you know, this we're talking about at an individual level, but there's many structural systemic barriers that women experience. So not to excuse, you know, these, these biases that exist within our systems. I mean, think about how much wealth we've, 
loss because of unequal pay, you know, for equal work. I mean, so there, there, there are lots of barriers, but just like on an individual level, when you ask like what we could do, I, I really, you know, I, I think it would be great if women could support other women and more of that is certainly welcome. Yeah. You know, we, we focus a lot. Like I even was saying to my husband, uh, uh, just even this week, we, we had been with family and we were trying to pick a restaurant. I'm like, can we please pick a, let's pick a local restaurant. Like I, we make conscious choices sometimes to say, oh, let's pick a local restaurant, like not a chain. What if we also say, let's pick a women owned business to purchase from this week or, you know, or support a women, different things like that. Those are ways in which we can support women as well or yes. in politics the same if you see a woman on the ballot investigate investigate yes. don't just not only just vote because she is a woman or because somebody is a man or whatever really look into what each person offers and see that don't automatically check somebody out because of their gender if by chance you have gender biases that you've yes. kind of been brought up to to kind of hold on to so that is important. And those are the little things that we can do to start implementing changes to not just automatically choose just one way just because that's what we've always done. <laughs> right? So, right. So, right. yeah, that's great. It's, it's funny, like your last talking points is actually in my book. So that's good. <laughs> We're aligned. <laughs> let's talk, let's yeah. talk then now about your book. How can people get your book? Mary, please share with the listeners. Yes. Um, you know, it's, it's on Amazon, but I always like to promote other retailers as well, especially bookshops.org. Um, they actually contribute to um, your local bookstores, brick and mortar. So um, that's a great place. Um, it's also available on Barnes & Noble and Apple and Google and all the other retailers. and um, I I thank you for this opportunity to to talk about the book. Yeah, this is thank you, thank you for coming amazing. on to talk about it, and again to allow me to ask you more about your own personal journey of that had to do with grief that led you to write this book. But you know, it's the first time I hear about the bookshop. What is it? Bookshop.com or bookstore.com? Um, it's bookshop.org. But .org, it's the first time I ever hear about that website. Yeah. So thank you for that. That's a, a great one to, to have in mind. And again, this is Mary Hayashi and her book, Women in Politics, Breaking Down the Barriers to Achieve True Representation. And her previous book, Far From... I, I can't understand my home. I can't understand my own writing. <laughs> that would That was her first yeah. book. I saw some used copies on thriftbooks.com, I think. Of your other book? Yeah, and they were like super cheap and um, they were available. I think they're used copies because it's out of print. It was 20 years ago, so but it was available through thriftbooks.com, yeah. Perfect. Well, thank you. Is there anything I have not asked you, Mary, that you'd like to share or any other way in which people can get a hold of you or check, you know, any other things and initiatives that you have, your website, of course, all that I'll put in the show notes, but is there anything else you'd like to share with the listeners? Well, I want to, um, you know, just end with, you know, you could 
I, I really want the book to inspire people um, to create their own life path, um, you know, regardless of their family background or ethnicity or histories, that, that women can, you know, create their own life path. And so I, I hope that message came through today. And again, I really enjoyed this and appreciate the opportunity to be on your show. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mary. Thank you once again. Thank you again so much for choosing to listen today. I hope that you can take away a few nuggets from today's episode that can bring you comfort in your times of grief. If so, it would mean so much to me if you would rate and comment on this episode. And if you feel inspired in some way to share it with someone who may need to hear this, please do so. Also, if you or someone you know has a story of grief and gratitude that should be shared so that others can be inspired as well, please reach out to me. And thanks once again for tuning in to Grief, Gratitude, and the Gray in Between podcast. Have a beautiful day.